I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Kloss. This is episode 404 for September 13th, 2012. Today's guest is New Orleans musician Martin Krusch. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. You can find out more about them and buy their music online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, and also to Rob Grundle, who designed the Jazz or Bust logo. You can join this show, and I hope that you will, at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can also join the show's mailing list, which is the best way to keep up with what's happening on The Jazz Session. You can just go to thejazzsession.com and click on mailing list, and you'll get an email each week. The show is available in iTunes and also via any RSS or podcast reader, and you'll find all of the links for that at thejazzsession.com. I'm also posting daily diaries while I'm on the road, which I, I still am. I guess the Jazz or Bust tour is kind of just partially going on. It's it's effectively over now that I'm back from Canada. But uh, anyway, there are still tour diaries from what's been happening recently at jasoncrane.org along with poems. By the way, if you're in New York City, there is uh, one bookstore in the entire city of New York that sells my book, which is Babo's Books. Uh, B-A-B-B-O apostrophe S books on Prospect Park West and Prospect Avenue in Brooklyn. It's almost on the corner of those two streets. So if you would like to buy a copy of my book and you live in New York and you enjoy supporting local booksellers, please stop by Leonora's bookstore, Bobo's Books, and uh, give her some of your money and in exchange get a copy of my book. I would appreciate it. She would appreciate it. And the entire concept of local bookstores would appreciate it. Speaking of New York City and Brooklyn and uh, Te- Windsor Terrace, uh, that's where I am right now, as a matter of fact. I am staying with a, a member of the show who I, I just can't thank enough for allowing me to stay here. Other shows may have more members, but the Jazz Session has the best members by far. Uh, he's a totally cool guy. I met him last night when I got into town from Montreal and uh, just a, a really fascinating, uh, wonderful person with lots of great interests. And uh, we have a lot of things in common. And I'm looking forward to getting to know him better while I'm here for probably about a week. I just did get back yesterday from Montreal. Uh, I was in Canada ever since the Detroit Jazz Festival. I went to Ottawa for about a week and Montreal for a couple of days. And uh, some tour diaries from what happened there are up now at jasoncrane.org. I did some interviews in both of those places. I interviewed uh, journalist and pianist Peter Hum and bassist John Geggy in Ottawa and then pianist David Rishpan and vocalist Sarah M.K. in Montreal. And I've got a bunch of interviews booked while I'm here in New York City, so uh, the show will has will have interviews at least until October sometime. And then, as I said, I think uh, my next plan is to go to Mississippi and then back to Auburn, Alabama, and while I'm in Alabama, to run a big Kickstarter fundraising campaign, a kind of an all-or-nothing. We, we make it or we don't for the show, and hopefully we'll make it, and I think we will. 
All right. Well, that's it for the uh, the business portion of today's meeting. Thank you all for coming. There'll be a buffet lunch. And while that's happening, please listen to this interview with Martin Krush. Here's some music from Martin's band, Magnetic Ear, and their wonderful record, Aliens of Extraordinary Ability. <laughs> guest is Martin Krush. He and his band Magnetic Ear most recently released an album called Aliens of Extraordinary Ability. And uh, I've wanted to interview you about this record for a long time, and it took me finally getting to New Orleans mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's hard to know where to start with you because it seems like uh, your life has taken so many interesting turns to end up at this place where we are right now very true uh and so maybe it's easiest just to sketch out for people a little bit about uh, who you are and and where you've been and the long road from where you were born to where we're now sitting in the upper ninth ward Uh, can you talk about kind of how you got to the u.s from europe and how to new orleans absolutely um i'm gonna run this down quickly for you um started playing saxophone with 15 um, I was lucky to be accepted at conservatory, which was uh, the only con- institution back in the day uh, where you could study jazz like you for free, like universities, you know. And after after my studies, uh, with my degree, I applied for a scholarship from a, a large German institution that is half funded by the government, half funded by industry. D-A-A-D, it doesn't matter, but I was lucky again and uh, made the cut and came to New York because I applied for, for a scholarship for the new school. And I went there for two, uh, for two semesters in 93. So this is how I got to New York. In 93, st- studied at the new school for a year, two semesters. Obviously, I was on a on a student visa then and then I found my way then I decided to stay in New York 
and found my way through staying on a journalist visa. I'm, this might not be of any importance. It's no, I think it's from fascinating. The, from, the, from the immigrant's <laughs> perspective, it's of tremendous importance. <laughs> but, um, however, um, I then, in 2000, I st let's, let's keep rather with a, a locale where I stayed. I stayed in New York from 93 till 95, and then I came down to New Orleans to visit a friend of mine just for a visit with no, no thoughts of moving. And I, w I was so impressed and so surprised. I mean, I can't even like find the words, but like within, like on the flight back, I already plotted me moving to New Orleans, which I did two months later. I moved. Do you so, remember what it was? What I mean, there's so much here, but do you remember what it was that grabbed you and made you think? Oh, well, this is I mean, I this friend of mine took me around. Great saxophone player Neil Sugarman uh, works with Deptone Music, and he showed me around in New Orleans for a whole week. It was an intense week of like going out every mm. night and so on and so forth. And we hit, um, of course, we hit you know Rebirth at Maple Leaf on Tuesday night. We saw Kermit at Vaughn's on his uh, steady gig. At, at Thursday night, and I mean, by the end of the week, I'm I have I saw a lot of had seen a lot of different stuff, and I would say the the thing that sticks out the most and immediately, if you come from New York, is the entire relationship between musicians and audience, and the role you play in this city as a musician versus as a musician in New York. In New York, you're at the bottom of the food chain in terms of economically and um, in and to be an artist in New York is something that works if you're very successful but everything below very successful is already somewhat dreadful and for it to be economically challenging that's something we all know when we get into this game but if you if you don't if you if you're struggling just to make it and the overall environment is not really appreciative you you coming to this point where you wonder what it is that you're actually doing mm. and so coming down here really the huge difference was just how it feels to be a musician down here you know and you might not be uh, you know you don't get rich here either that's not the point but you have a role that you play in this community and and you have a function and it's much more has to do much more with everyday life than with an exceptional rare concert that you go to once a month or whatever so that's in short the biggest difference that i that i felt immediately when i came down here and so that was one of the that just you know hits you right away and 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 that touches on a large area this the difference and that music plays down here compared to new york has reaches into every aspect of your life as a musician and how, how so say more about that um well you know like the entire fabric is such that um you play m much more often and somehow you might very well do low-key gigs but it's a it's it's much more often you don't necessarily play like for a huge audience every time but um it's a it's much more an everyday life 
thing. It's a it's a um, everyday commodity, you know, music, you know, versus like um, going to this one concert a month, you know, and and then also the culture of sitting in at other with other people is also very like we have I don't think right now there's there's any jam sessions in town because there's no real need for it if you want to play with some people then you just take a chance and go bring your horn and see whether they let you play you know and then you know most people know each other anyways and you you know hook this up maybe before you go or something but the entire fabric is just much more um it just allows for for this much more informal type of participation you know and and that's something i you know we all use widely you know it's like if you have a phase where you feel you're really interested in expanding your trad repertoire you know you go to preservation hall if you you you've got to dress up a little bit because that's how you have to do it but if you're if, you know like if you're really into it and people will respect that and will give you a chance and and will for the most part very readily share what they know namely in my case Leroy Jones has me take on his wings a little bit and lets me play when I show up and I always you know try to prepare more songs and and that ha has helped me a lot and so this type of um oral like teaching each other is just something that is so different from New York I mean it doesn't compare in any way So you, on the plane flight back from your first visit here, you'd already determined, okay, I need to go yeah, back, absolutely. and you did. Yes, absolutely. I felt like, you know, for all the studying I've done at schools at that point in my life, this was my postgraduate, this is where you learn, this is where you pick up the pieces that have so far not been represented in my education, you know, I mean, almost to the point of like, that's where it all starts making sense coming here and partaking in this type of musical life you know where before I felt that 
it's that that the um, you know the wall between audience and musicians or like to, it's just more impenetrable you, you know how would I put this um, it's you're just part of a larger cultural life down here which there is no such thing in New York in that sense as far as I'm concerned and uh, my experience of New Orleans is extremely limited I've only been here a week but my experience of New York is pretty large. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I, as I know that you've heard episodes of this show, and so if you've heard more than two, you've probably heard me say that one issue I have with New York is in fact that exact wall that you're talking about, mm -hmm. that idea that uh, a, lot of, a lot of what happens for me musically is happening for the benefit of other musicians rather than with the the lay audience in right, mind. Right. And my, as I say, my extremely limited experience of being at shows in New Orleans. Uh, I mean, the very first show I went to in New Orleans was a free jazz show at Blue Nile. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, the band, particularly Jeff Albert, who was leading that show, was talking to the crowd the whole time. There were young people, people young, I'm 38, but there were people, I would say, 18 or 20 years younger than, well, 18, I guess, years younger than me in the club. There were people who just, like, walked through but actually stopped to listen and to check out, you know, this pretty challenging music. Mm -hmm. And it all seemed to be kind of swirling around and people mm -hmm. just, like, people expected the musicians to reach out and the musicians expected the audience to kind of take them in and be mm -hmm. part of that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the other shows I've seen since I've been here were very much like that. And then up to, I went to see the Stooges brass band mm -hmm. at the hi-ho and that's totally right. about, that's like music as sex. I mean, that's right. just totally about, you know, right. dancing and crowd participation. Right. And, and that just seems much more natural and present right. here in my right. ex limited experience. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, the cover is usually somewhere around five bucks, right. seven bucks. You can walk in and out. It's not like a huge commitment of course, naturally. I mean, you can only compare New York and New Orleans so directly because it's unfair. It's am apples and oranges, you know. And of course, going out to see music in New York requires a train ride and all this, and 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 usually a substantial cover and so on and so forth. While here, it's a small town. You can ride your bike, and to go out doesn't have to be a huge commitment. You just walk in, see whether you like it, and if you don't, you walk out, and it's in that sense less formal. And more inviting, and and if you don't like it, just go down the street. There might be somebody playing, you know, who you like, and so on and so forth. So it's just like a hugely different fabric, naturally. Not just I'm not just blaming New York for what you know. It's just a different animal. Sure. When you came back here, how did you go about? What, what was your your goal? If you had a specific goal, and how did you go about kind of establishing yourself in uh -huh. this scene? Well, let me retrace the curve just a little bit. Sure. Um, I came to New Orleans in 95, and um, really what happened was in 98, I went up to New York in the summer to do some work with a friend of mine, just to make some money and come back down. And I had already planned on moving within the city if it went once coming back, you know, because at the time I was living not very far away where you're staying right now on Montague Street. But it was a really, the neighborhood was very funky back then. And that street was funky and that block was very funky. And after three and a half years on that block, I was ready to move into a more peaceful neck of the woods anywhere, maybe uptown or whatever. I just, at that point, just 
was really worn down by the by the violence and the crime that I was surrounded daily. And so I came to New York and I stayed with a friend of mine in Red Hook and and I was like kind of like I was really taken by what Red Hook was in 98 because it was just like little undiscovered village like at the waterfront and and I felt at the time I could actually combine a New Orleans lifestyle with being in New York and it really worked well like I rented the storefront apartment and we had rent parties and I cooked rice and beans and and charged five bucks at the door and paid my rent that way and and that all worked out for a while really great and so that's how I ended up really accidentally moving back to New York (laughs) you know and then I ended up staying in Red Hook for six years. But as things grow, as, as neighborhoods you know, develop and are coming up and being gentrified to a certain degree and rents go up and everything else affected Red Hook just as well as every other neighborhood that goes through this type of an upswing and sure. discover, you know. And, and over time... Just staying there, paying eight hundred fifty dollars rent, and having to go and basically go out work on construction, just really diminished my musical activity to to barely maintaining and not growing, not developing. And I always kind of knew in the back of my mind I was gonna had to give New Orleans another try. I wasn't really, I didn't really leave New Orleans behind entirely. It was just a development, you know, that happened that way. And and so after six years, you know, I I moved back down here, you know, just to give it a try. And like I knew soon and immediately that this was for me, you know, um, for two reasons. I had now the space and the time to practice as much as I wanted to and really had to at the time to really get back in the game. You know, I felt like practicing was was top priority which for for the first for the f- first three four years was really what happened i was just practicing a lot and, and just playing gigs around town and whatnot the other thing is i've done uh, i've been working as a saxophone repairman all along from the beginning on as i came to new york in 93 but the way the infrastructure is in new orleans compared to new york i did work and did repair horns in New York also at times even quite a lot but but people don't come through as often and and here in New Orleans I'm in this lucky position to not have all that much competition and and so it just all the important pieces fell into place when I came back you know a way of making money that doesn't eat your entire day and the space to practice like you are staying in the front house where I used to practice in the back, I, which is the actual the old slave quarters. And so I had this tiny little house in the back that you see if you go in the backyard where Brad lives now. And, and my, all the surrounding neighbors tolerated me practicing. And so all these elements just came together, which every single one was a huge struggle in New York, you know. And I never looked back. I knew after two weeks this was it, you know.
Will you talk about forming Magnetic Ear and where the idea for a, the pocket brass band? Yeah, you know, that's actually, it's, if you look up there, there's a little poster. That's the first time we played together. Back then it was a trio with Kevin O'Day on drums and Kirk Joseph on sousaphone. So it started out as a trio and I was using effects on the saxophone, harmonizer, mainly harmonizer, some distortion, but but I was trying to make that trio sound as big and multi-voice as possible. And that really morphed into um, you know, then I into a multi-horn band, you know, because I felt I got to this point where it's it was kind of cool, but not. I mean, you know, using harmonizer, it's just it's it can be very cool, and if you're smart about it, you can really get a lot out of it, you know. But but on the long run, it's you you don't have that many options and choices in in terms of when you go further in the direction of arranging and really sure. start voicing stuff and really get more into into the arrangement aspect, you know. And so I just. This how this this is how the idea was born. Like to have a horn band. At first, I didn't think of it as a brass band. And if you trace our three records, you know the first one is a trio record, only with Matt Perrine instead of Kirk Joseph, because Kirk was on the West Coast after the storm. To then develop into a five-piece band sousaphone, two trombones, baritone, sorry, sousaphone, one trombone, baritone, tenor, and drums, but it was like a five-piece jazz band still, where I arranged standards for us, and that was cool, we, we have a record, it's called um, Live at Saturn Bar, we recorded it live there, in fact, ourselves, you know, I have this little A-track that I bought for this, and, and we just made our own record live there. Um, that's cool, but but again, it was you know, I felt I was hitting the limits of what really works in a swing in a jazz context, as in the underlying premise to be swinging has its limits when it comes to sousaphone. You know, there's a certain way swing works between upright bass and drums. And you can only get this close to this particular feel. And and then also, why do you hire a sousaphone if you're hearing a, a, a jazz band? You know, right. so, so this is what became also more obvious to me. And I started writing more groove-based and, and, and stopped relying, you know, like on the swing concept. And that eventually naturally got me further and further over to the brass band end of things and then i hired another trombone and and then i really specifically wrote music to get away completely from the the jazz format you know and so that's really the evolution of this whole thing it was never like planned like this of course but just evolved into that you know and um I mean, we had an audience as when we were still a five-piece jazz band, but in the same time, you know, brass band music is incredibly popular in, in New Orleans, tr traditionally and naturally, but also very popular 
amongst young people and had its own upsurge, I would say, in the last five, six, seven years, you know, more and more young kids just started playing Balkan-inspired um, brass band music. It's not directly tied into the trad revival that we experience, but loosely it has something, it relates to it because you have a lot of kids who are traveling, who play either euphonium or, or you know, deep mid horns, or alto, and so on and so forth, or whatever trumpet, and um, and really make a living busking, and and that also is a scene not completely separated from the brass band scene, you know, because it's all happening in the street. You don't need amplification, and if you hang together long enough, you can develop a repertoire. So. So that helped us also to tap into a yet another and large audience. Yeah, because the music, uh, for example, on Aliens of Extraordinary Ability, I mean, it, it certainly, it is easy to hear its uh, affiliation with New Orleans brass band music, but it's much broader than that stylistically. It's obviously drawing on a much wider palette mm -hmm. of sources and influences mm -hmm. than just the New Orleans tradition, right. I think it's fair to say, right? Right. We were pretty specific when we made this record. Um, when we said, okay, here is a New Orleans style, second line style, brass band tune that we wrote, we have, we play this with, you know, snare and bass separated. We have a bunch of guest stars on the record to make this possible because our basic format is still the drum set. Sure. You know, just like the Dirty Dozen, for example, you know, but when we tapped into that New Orleans style, we were kind of serious about getting as close to it as possible, you know, like being specific about that, you know, so, so these two songs that we have uncle Roger and, and dodge that dodge this ninja are the, are, you know, stylistically very new Orleans brass band. But then we wrote other songs, you know, that are specific to Balkan influence, you know? So we really try to, you know, to be serious about the styles we're tapping into without having to copy anything directly. But, you know, you you want to make the change of flavor from one tune to the next distinct, you know. And so that was kind of the backdrop of this. And then, so we, you know, there's definitely New Orleans style, Balkan style, and then there's if you, you know, there's some more African influences in, in a couple of songs. Turkey on the West Bank and Dimdik Dakar really deal much more with African rhythms, 6-8, 12-8, than the Balkan or the New Orleans-style songs that we have on the record. And is the, as you look even past this record to things that you've written more recently, do you see things continuing to evolve, either evolve or focus or... Uh, how do, do you see continued changes, I guess, in the sound of the band? Um, yes, I want to go further in, in the direction of, of employing different grooves, everything from rock to funk to whatever um, that underlie every single song. You know, like the, 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 the basic concept is to write great dance music. That's 
that's I don't care if if you you know I don't care where you're taking it from if you can make your audience dance while playing interesting music that's the name of the game as far as I'm concerned so so whatever and and I'm you know we're I'm also reaching out further into the direction of covering music you know it's it's a absolute free-for-all it's not like limited in any way it's only as long as the music is danceable and it's basic this the bottom line well you know in in nearly 400 episodes of this show you're probably the second person ever to say well the main thing is that the music is danceable which i love and in fact the only other example i can think of of somebody saying that is the raya brass band who's a balkan uh -huh, band from uh -huh, new york uh -huh, who right. uh, were on the show too and that's mm -hmm. also their purpose mm -hmm. and their purpose mm -hmm. is figure out a way to get people dancing and on top of that we can play right anything we want exactly um uh, which man i just find really refreshing i mean i uh, i told you a little bit in the car on the way over here about my own background and i mm -hmm. grew up playing mm -hmm. music for dancers i mean i played in salsa bands and funk bands where we played in dance clubs and it was instant feedback if the music was successful or mm -hmm. not because either mm -hmm. people were sitting or they were dancing mm -hmm. and right. it's like being a stand-up comedian right. you know immediately right. if right. what you're doing is working right which I think is like a visceral way to perform music that just in the least in the improvised music world is not all that common anymore, right. which I really appreciate. And it right. sounds like maybe you do too, that idea of almost making people's bodies react. Right. No matter what their minds do. That's another right. question. It sounds like. Absolutely. I mean, if you think of salsa or something like that, I mean, some of this music is incredibly complex, but, the beat is there and people dance to it and it's and, and it inspires the dancer it, mm. you know if the if if it's groovy it can be very wild and or complex on top you know and and you still have the full effect it doesn't diminish that you know as long as it doesn't get in the way of the groove sure the complexity on top just goes to different parts of your body you know but it's still a whole unit together as long as it's groovy and it makes you feel like dance Will you say something about what it was like for you to come from another place and to kind of take this music on as your own, particularly this New Orleans tradition, which is so so deeply rooted. It's so important to this city. There are so many famous names and kind of generations of families associated with this music. Will you just talk about what it was like to to make your own path through this music and to become accepted and to, you know, just be part of the musical life and community of New Orleans in that way? Mm. When I came here first, I was definitely your very, you know, like, you know, bebop-influenced 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, was, like, centered. That's where, you know, all the music happened that we study, that we practice, that we transcribe, and so on and so forth, which... In 95 wasn't, you know, I mean, there's a jazz, jazz scene in New Orleans for that, but it's not the main meat. But, um, but, but still in 95, it was much more prevalent in, in the sense of like, this is what the scene was with the cats that I hung out with. They were, that was still very jazz oriented and I was still very, much absorbing the jazz jazz information and you know standards 
not necessarily New Orleans material per se, you know, but jazz being played here, you mm -hmm. know, that, that's just, just simplification, call it contemporary jazz, which is, maybe we shouldn't use this term, but, <laughs> but I mean, you know, like modern, whatever, you know, like, let's stick with 40s, 50s, sure, largely, you know, and, and that was definitely on top was, was, was all that I cared for at the time, and was really studying hard and, 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 writing music in the vein of that you know write music for quintet that's like you writing maybe a harmony part for the second voice or whatever but it's a it's a it's a sheet lead sheet that has chords and a melody on it case closed right that's the form that's the melody that's the tune if you get good people to play that then then it's already complete from the compositional standpoint you know and and i was lucky back then to to catch uh, Nicholas' attention and he liked the material that I wrote. Nicholas Payton. And Nicholas Payton and, and then agreed to do Cut This Life record with me at Snug Harbor. So you can tell in nine, from in that period up to 99 was all, all about jazz, jazz. You know, and then over time, you know, comes, you know, a lot of peers you know, including Nicholas and others have gone through this evolution of looking around and see what else is there and how can I put my abilities and my music and whatever in, in a context that reaches out of the very limited jazz, jazz space, you know? And... To answer your question in terms of like how was my that my own evolution in this in, in in that sense is parallel to some that is just happening in our time, you know where a lot of people are branching out and finding other ways of you know making music that that is gets a little out of that jazz ghetto. Um, but me personally, I mean, the way I look at it is I I, I think of myself as a largely a blank page because I'm not coming with a larger musical tradition. I'm not rooted in classical European music. Um, never studied. I mean, never studied. It was never something that I was where I would say now, oh yeah, that's a huge influence on me. You know, in passing, yes. Ultimately, I can probably not even judge it, but it's. but I still think of myself as coming as a blank page, no, no luggage, no advantage or disadvantage by being exposed earlier or, you know, like it's, this is, so in other words, my, I see it, my challenge to absorb something and, and get to the essence without, to the essence of, of a particular style right now for example brass band music or different styles of brass band music but but understand the essence well enough to write in that style without playing those exact songs you know there's nothing wrong with playing you know the the classical repertoire of any style but to me my answer to being a blank page is like i write something instead of 
oh, um, now I come to New Orleans, learn all the New Orleans music. That's another approach, and I, I absolutely respect that, you know, but it wasn't mine. I felt like my challenge for me was, like, absorb it and create something like it, mm. you know. That, that's the best I can put it, you know. I, now I'm learning... Now I'm learning a lot of New Orleans repertoire, traditional music, because I feel like I should know more of those songs, and I'm working on it. But I never thought that my ticket was going to be come here, learn the tunes, and therefore, and then, um, and that'll be my work. Where, again, there's nothing wrong with it. I always felt writing was half of my adventure, you know in whatever style or at whatever period in my life. say something to me about uh the impact of being a saxophone repair technician on being a saxophone player i mean you are professionally a saxophone player mm -hmm. but you also are professionally a person who right. takes apart and puts back right. together saxophones has that has doing that for all these years i mean it's coming up on 20 years now right if my math is right has mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. has that changed the way you look at the instrument as an instrument or the way you approach it have you and maybe in a more intimate way or um I couldn't say that, but I will say that having all these players come and go all the time, I'm picking up a lot of things that, you know, like when you watch somebody pick up his horn and hasn't played in a week or something because I overhauled it and he's playing it for the first time, then you're, that's, that's a moment to me, that's always very interesting, mm. the first note and how people go about it. What do they do when they try their instrument? And um, sometimes it's astonishing. I remember once overhauling Seamus Blake's saxophone, and, he, and I knew he was in Mexico with his girlfriend for two <laughs> weeks and hasn't touched his horn or any other horn. And he came back into my shop, and, and it was absolutely astonishing. It was, it was like the intensity and readiness was absolute instant. There was not even a half second where 
you felt like, oh, he's still warming up. It was, I've actually never seen anything like <laughs> it. was absolutely amazing, you know. And so you get to be there for really interesting, intimate moments, you know. And, yeah. And I picked up a lot from that. And then, of course, you get to talk to, to, to the cats and, 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 and you, you, you know, develop a friendly, positive relationship and, and it, it helps along it and the, the exchange of knowledge and all that, you know. I mean, all the cats in New Orleans that come and go here, it's like really a huge list of interesting people. And, sure. And so, you know, of course, my work gets more refined over time and I would like to believe that I'm getting better, you know, but I don't think that my understanding or relationship to the instrument necessarily changed mm -hmm. all that much, you know. Well, let me flip that question then and say, does being a professional saxophonist change the way you approach the idea of repairing an instrument? Does it oh, give you... Oh, of course. Sure. Of course. That's how I got into it in the first place. Sure. You know, you... I had this great friend in Munich, his saxophone player, his name is Günther Klatt. Worth looking up if you're interested. Really unique cat. Spell, spell his last name for us? K-L-A-T-T. -T. Okay. Günther. And, uh, and he, he, he is basically the guy who made me play saxophone because he so impressed me. I was like, I need to do this. And, but um, when, when I took a lesson with him, he looked at my horn. He's like, you really need some work done on your horn. And, and um, he showed me how to do it. And that was my first step into this whole thing. And that was very early on this was as a saxophone super player. Early. Okay. I had my horn like a year into playing saxophone. Oh, wow. Okay. Know? And he showed me how to cut the felt and how to, where to buy gold leather and, and how to make the pad and then how to, you know, I mean, all that stuff. And so that got me started with fixing my own, my own saxophone. And of course, over time, you try to make your horn play better and get more sound and so on and so forth. And, and that, that informs how I do the work. And I like, I believe that's also why I am somewhat popular with the uh, saxophone players here because I play saxophone and I will try every horn that I fix and I won't touch instruments that I don't play. I don't play clarinet and I don't repair clarinet because I can't check the instrument afterwards. Sure. And to me, that's key, you know. And over the stretch of 25 years, you get a pretty good feeling about what you can get out of a horn and where the limits are. You know, I can't make it better than it is, but I can make it as good as it can play, you know, and then you develop your own tricks you know i make resonators i mean this is more technical stuff but um you know the pads you're a saxophone player you understand the pads are made out of felt and leather and if they are not covered on the inside with a disc which they call resonators the the leather for it being porous and not rigid as a surface absorbs some of the of the vibration actually of the air particles in the oscillating air column so when you cover that with a disc you get more sound because mm. you have less of the swallowing effect and if you cover the tone hall max as much as you can then you max out that aspect of repair so i offer that to as well as an overhaul where I make resonators myself that are measured to every tone hole and wow. thereby only leave like 
a sixteenth of an inch between the resonator and the rim of the tonal. Okay. I mean, these are technical details, and I'm not sure that this is interesting for the audience, but um, that stuff that comes out of playing and trying to maximize your own sound and and informs how I do it and and all that. Catching you in this brief 24-hour window here before you're about to have a, a, an adventure of your own. Do you want to say a couple words about what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, I always, you know, I, I uh, always liked sailing, and I had a little. I started sailing as a teenager, and over the years, did different types of trips that were, you know, longer passages, be it a boat delivery. Um, but. Um, I always thought if I really ever make it back to New Orleans, this is the ideal place to have a boat. So about four years ago, I looked around with a friend of mine and and found this little 23-foot pocket cruiser and bought that thing and have worked on it over the years and especially intensely for the last few months to do a lot of renovation work. But now the boat's ready. And tomorrow, no, rather on Tuesday in two days, we're headed out just for a couple of weeks, sailing along the coast eastwards, you know, like towards Florida. But we won't get as far as Florida, I think. You know, we'll take our time and take this very leisurely. But it's a great adventure. You go through the lake. Uh, you exit the lake through the, a little channel that's called the Wrigley's. It's a natural opening into the mm -hmm. Gulf. And then there's... One Barry Island after the other. It starts with Cat Island and Ship Island and Horn Island. And some of them, like Cat Island, is completely uninhabited, barren, wild island, you know, right here in front of the, at the doorstep, so to speak. And so that'll be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. And what's the name of your boat? Mouse. Like M-A-U-S? Correct. Okay. In fact, the, there's a song on the record called Mouse. This, this the one here. Uh -huh. And there's a poem. You're a poet. Um, this is a local poet, uh, Moose, Raymond Moose Jackson. And he wrote that poem while sailing with me on the lake. Oh, wow. And and so we had to include that on the record with this 
little arrangement that I wrote for it. That's fantastic. And then you fall off into a full sail. And you don't care anymore about what's happening on land tonight. The recovery, the violent setbacks, parades. Apollo strokes the poncha train, another farewell caress. Purchases with violet fingers a rivalry with the near full moon. I mean, that's where we're headed, isn't it? Passing from the land of fancy grocery stores to our wrecked problem child, the ninth ward, sliding by the starboard. We're going back into the dream time, thanks to what we take for granted. Hide from and squander, all brought to one in a little boat, quiet as a church mouse. Small enough that we each get a hand at the till, taking turns because we need to stop and snap mental photographs to compare against visions of carnival past. That one right after the storm, that was the best Mardi Gras that anyone can remember. This isn't even poetry anymore. It's just life, rich and painful and too damn fast. But occasionally, you break the surface, execute a perfect tack, and sail straight into glory. Uh, one organization that's done a, a ton of great work here in, in New Orleans and all over the United States uh, is Habitat for Humanity, and we're actually sitting in a Habitat home right now. Do you want to say a few words about Habitat yeah, and absolutely, your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Habitat is a great organization, and I'm a beneficiary of their great work. Um, what happened was they made an extra special effort after the storm to help with the rebuilding of New Orleans and in cooperation with um, Alice Marsalis and Brantford and um, and with Harry Connick was yes, that right the Musicians exactly. Village right. yes yeah. Harry Connick they said let's build a place specifically for musicians where they all you know like where we just really build a lot of houses in a short time so they you know we make a lot of them return to New Orleans that was the basic idea this was Musicians Village. This is, is right? the Musicians okay. Village, and that's eight blocks this way. Okay. In fact, Bartholomew, the street I live on, goes through the middle of the Musicians Village, which is four city blocks. Okay. But um, it also confuses people because they think Habitat only works for musicians, and that's absolutely <laughs> right. not true. So, so just to be sure, the the basic way Habitat is working is such that if you come fall into a certain income bracket that is not below let me shoot from the hip but it might be interesting for the audience to know somewhere below 17 in between 17 and 24 grand a year if this is your documented income you qualify and if you do your down payment is 350 hours of sweat equity so you don't need 
all that extra cash for a down payment. Your work is your down payment. Mm. And once you close the deal and you move into your house, then you have a 20-year interest-free loan to pay back the, the, the costs of materials that it took to build the house because it's built with volunteer work. So short of getting a house for free, it's the best deal that you can possibly get. They build great houses. I told you on the way over here, my electricity bill was never more than $55, winter and or summer. I have no gas, all electricity, incredibly well insulated. In the past storms, the habitat houses that were already built didn't take any damage, any wind or storm damage. Good to know and note, you know, they're solidly built. I think it's a great organization. And I'm, I've been incredibly happy ever since I moved in here. It took me a bit longer than most everybody else because back at, at the time, I still didn't have permanent residency. It took a long time for me. It took three terms of being an artist, like three three-year terms oh, wow. of artist visa until I applied for the artist green card. Okay. And I was granted that and the official title that you then get is Alien of Extraordinary Ability. And that led to the name of the record. <laughs> you know, but once I, I mean, I called Habitat basically the next day and was like, yeah, now I got permanent residency because I was one of the first people to apply right after the storm. Okay. I came here and was like, this is for me. And then I was accepted into the program, you know, but like I was, they sent me a letter, congratulations, you're in, but one document missing is permanent residency. So it took a few years longer for me to get that together, but then I reapplied and all went very fast. And like a year later, I was in the house. So did you, your 350 hours of sweat equity, that means that you actually built some portion of the house that we're currently your own house or did you um, work on other houses i well? worked on other houses it, okay it was a matter of timing when the building period started on this house i was absolutely busy fixing horns it was a peak time and i had already absorbed close to the 350 hours and i'd spent really just maybe 30 or whatever on the house okay you know because, in fact, they built this house so fast that uh, it was largely put together in two weeks. Oh, wow. You know, for the most part. Like, I just wanted to check what was going on because I haven't heard from them. And the last time it was just the, founda when I, the foundation. And when I came back, the was house, house was here. And I thought I was on the wrong block. I was like, there's not supposed to be a house. I must be on the wrong block. And then I realized that they built it that fast. That's so amazing. So sort of... That bypassed me, but I've done most every step at some point at another house. Sure. You know, the floor system, the framing, the siding, and so on and so forth, the roof, all these things. I've done most any single step at some point at another house. So oh, that's I have great. a pretty good idea how it's done. My guest is saxophonist Martin Krusch. Uh, the band Magnetic Ear has a most recent record called Aliens of Extraordinary Ability. And it's such a pleasure to finally meet you and, and talk to you. I'm really glad you were on the show. Thanks oh, very thank much. Thank you so much for asking me for the interview. I'm a big fan of your show. Well, thank you very much. All right.
That's music from Martin Krush and his band Magnetic Ear and their album Aliens of Extraordinary Ability. I want to thank my pal Jeff Albert, trombonist in New Orleans, who's also been on this show, for setting that up and introducing me to Martin. This is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Quas. Thanks to all of you for listening to the show. Please, 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 please join the show if you want there to continue to be one at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.